Well, I got to tell you, you know, when Janelle happens to be listening to these things, the first thing she tells me is, you never answer the question, Steve. <laughs> and then she would say exactly what you said. You go off on these tangents and you never answer the question. And I just think, well, what's wrong with you that I go off on these weird things? And uh, I'm just not, I'm abnormal. Action. Okay, so this is part two. After some technical difficulties, we are back, continuing our conversation a day later. Since we last spoke, I purchased a copy of The Coming of Gormando, the first collection of Nexus newspaper strips, and it is quite the epic. There's about a hundred pages of new material here, but each one of those pages has about two pages of content on it. I would highly recommend buying the paper version and seeing the oversized pages. This is not a comic you can read on your phone. Uh, I'm working large right now because it's Nexus in the format that it is now. It's a comic strip. So I'm actually working the size of if you haul out the Sunday newspaper that you get every Sunday, that's the size that I'm working now with my individual Nexus strips. Would this be the same size that, say, Hal Foster or Will Eisner used back in the day? I don't know about Will Eisner, but... The, as far as Hal Foster, yeah, it's, it's exactly the size of the print giant strip that you would see in the Sunday newspapers. In fact, if I were, if this was visual, if I were to hold up a page of an original Nexus page that I'm working on now and the actual Sunday size page of print Valiant back in the 40s and 50s, it would be identical in size. Most important to me, Michael, is since this is, this is my first outing into writing, I very much want to know from readers how I scored on the writing test. You know, is the story coherent? Since it, it's a newspaper format outing, does it grab you on each page? Does it end with a cliffhanger? Is that working? And then does the overall story work? I'm very careful to make sure there's no holes in the story. I, I despise anything in any format that leaves you uh, wondering why the certain thing in the movie was resolved. That's that's bad writing. And that applies to anything that you look at or read. So that was a writing that's pretty much on my own. I had to explain many multiple things to make have the story make sense. That's a mandate when it comes to or an imperative when it comes to writing stories. You have to explain stuff and you have to explain it in the right order in the story. It's gotta come up at the right time. So after a lot of brainstorming, having a few friends over, that helped me collate some of the very difficult elements of figuring out some of the story elements. People will have to let me know if I scored on that point. So I'm very interested in that. Now with the second book that I've already written, and um, I'm pretty much close to actually finishing it, The Battle for Thune World. That's another case where I very much want to know want to get feedback on the writing aspect. I'm confident about the drawing because I've been doing that for 40 years. I've only been writing for one year. <laughs> uh, Steve, I wanted to ask you, Mike Barron is credited all over this book. So just to be clear, the next one, volume two, will be 
all dude. Is that correct? Yeah. The funny thing about, you know, the first book, I did give Mike Barron a lot of credit just out of sheer decency, I think. You know, we originally started out working on the story together. But after the first couple of pages, it was clear that the way he thought about the story and the way I thought about it was going to diverge too much to really have both of us as authors of the story. So I would say after like page six, I pretty much took over completely with story and dialogue. So that's the, that's kind of the real truth behind it. But I, I very much wanted to credit Baron anyway, just for a sense of doing the right thing. And I don't know, maybe appeasing fans that expect Baron's name to be there. So that's that's kind of the, the truth behind the curtain there. Oh, well, with the new characters Gormando and Gnosis, I read a note you wrote in the back matter that Marvel initially rejected the designs. So I take it that means you checked in with them vis-a-vis -vis copyright issues or just them being testy? They weren't being testy. It was my fault. I just I tend to think so fan-like about these things. As, as say a kid would when he was 10 years old, wouldn't it be cool if I did this story and I, I brought in a character that looked just like a Jack Kirby character? Well, in the real world, that doesn't work. So I, again, out of decency, I sent the, the designs of this Gnosis character to Marvel. And they looked at it and said, you know, what anyone would say, don't rip us off. And they were completely right about that. I was kind of blinded by that, but just by the virtue of having fun with a design that was way too close to a Jack Kirby's a Silver Surfer. So they um, they made it clear that I shouldn't do that. I re-paced re in a lot of the redesign of the costume of Gnosis. You've let the cat out of the bag a bit by saying Gnosis is a Silver Surfer, so I, I guess it's okay for me to mention Gormando is essentially a Galactus-type character. He is an eater of worlds. Yeah. And Gnosis is the character that that arrives before him, sort of heralding the coming of Gormando. Yeah, well, the, the thing that might actually surprise people, uh, Gormando knows his story was something Baron came up with like 20 years ago. And I rejected the story. I didn't think it was going to go anywhere. So me being the funny guy that I am, I actually incorporated the idea that Baron had 20 years ago and was somehow able to recruit the story that began as a bunch of farmers watching a bunch of things sprout out from the ground, which were essentially hairs of, of a creature. Now, from there, it was anyone's guess as to what it was. I think Baron thought up the idea that it was a bug in the middle of the planet. But why was the bug there? And from there, I, I kind of maneuvered the story, thinking back to the time that Baron had this other idea of this Galactus surfer idea, Gormando, meaning appetite or, or something related to that, and, and Gnosis being messenger or carrier of some kind, I believe. You know, Baron's always really good at the literate background of words, far better than I am. So for some reason, I was able to reach back in time and incorporate those two characters and use them or reuse them into a story that I was going to surprise myself the way it turned out. You know, here we are with this idea of the, the hair sprouting from a planet from the ground up and the idea that these bugs are within the planet 
that are, that are going to eat their way out and end up destroying the planet. And then tying that in with this giant, whatever he is, this bio bean that uh, Baron named Gormando and that I used as part of the story to explain what these bugs are about and that Gormando feeds on these bugs. So it's uh, the bugs destroy the planet. Gormando feeds on the bugs. Gnosis comes in to locate the planets where the bugs are because Gormando is too inept to find them on his own. So why not incorporate a sentinel to find them for him? So that's the tie-in with these old characters that Baron thought of that I found a way to reuse. Oh, well, now that you're writing your own Nexus, uh, are there any clues you're willing to offer us about the future of where you're taking Nexus, Sundra, or any of the other minor characters? The Merc plays sort of a key role in the ending of The Coming of Gormando. Yeah, I mean, you know, I got to tell you, where do these ideas come from? I mean, I'm asking myself where they come from, and the answer is part magic and part I don't know. And the I don't know part ties in with the magic of it. Uh, I guess if you were to write or ask anybody, where do these things come from? It's it's kind of this weird kind of ratio of alchemy and and things that nobody really understands about how human beings are able to conjure these things up. For me, it was, uh, how did I think these things up? It was um, my kind of adage in the back of my head was, whatever you thought you couldn't do because it was too outrageous, do it anyway. I will also mention uh, there's four or five pages in the new book that have a nice, clean uh, appearance by the Badger, who was a character I loved for a decade and haven't seen much of, of course, in the last 15 years. It was nice for you to illustrate a couple of pages with him. Yeah, I, I do believe that was that was my idea. I, I've talked to Baron for a long time. I said, we need one more appearance of the Badger. And, and the idea on my end was to bring them back to the bulk-shaped world where they first made an appearance way back in the uh, end of the capital run of Nexus. So that would have been in, say, 1983 or four, something like that. And it never quite came to be, but this was my chance to bring him back. Now, I still think in the future, who knows, but I, I definitely want to bring the Badger back. He's good for one more run in next. He's too good to pass up. And then from there, it's just a matter of doing what, what anyone does. Why bring him back? And if you do bring him back, what's the most outrageous thing you can do to justify bringing him back? And then go from there. Well, he's a very favorite character of mine, so I'm very appreciative that you are uh, still putting him in the mix. Nexus itself is deeply sci-fi. It's a science fiction story. Do you yourself have any science fiction films, books, or other comics that you love? Thinking back, it began with Magnus Robot Fire. Which you got to do a great crossover of about uh, 30 years ago. Yeah, that's right. Magnus was probably my first recollection of seeing a uh, one of the first comic books i ever remember looking at and reading and what i remember about that comic that put its stamp indelibly on my brain was it felt real the art was classically rendered and the story was so solid that when you read it pretty much at any age it felt as though it was something that that had the ring of reality to it i'd have to say that what I just said is the golden rule about anything 
that I personally want to be part of as a writer. You have to feel as though this thing is so well constructed that it has a total feel of not being fiction at all. It has a complete sense of grounded reality to it. And that's what makes things uh, so scary is when you read it, it doesn't, you're so swept up in the story that you feel like it could be a, a situation of life and death for these characters. And I believe I've succeeded with that on uh, the next volume after the coming of Cormando, which is called The Battle for Thune World. I think I really hit the mark on that. I just went and looked, and uh, Magnus Robot Fighter slash Nexus by you and Baron and Gary Martin is, in fact, 30 years old this year. Isn't that amazing? Uh, amazing is the word for it. Anyone who's lived through the decades, and believe me, that's the way life works, it begins as years and then five years and 10 years and then you hit 30 and life moves on from there. And yeah, that's the way a lifetime is, is lived out in terms of years and then decades and then more decades. And eventually you go through the, the cycle of what everyone goes through. You reach hopefully old age, what's considered old age. It's funny because I'm actually in contact with Bill Shatner. You know, to me, he's Captain Kirk. I just want to call him Captain Kirk. But I think I finally got him to the point where I'm going to be able to have a friendship with this guy. So we've been writing back and forth. And I'm uh, trying to convince him I'm, I'm uh, someone that he would, if he got to know me, he'd really find it rewarding. We'd both find it rewarding. And I'm just, I'm always looking for friends that have a brain in their head. Shatner's the kind of guy that has it. He's done everything. He's seen everything. And, and I can learn things from a guy like that. And I have a hard time finding friends that I can actually learn things from. He's clearly a guy like that. But he's also 91 years old. And so there's, I told him, you know, he mentioned in one of his letters, well, we'll, we'll get together in the future. And I wrote him back and said, how about now? <laughs> As Easter eggs go, I remember seeing a couple of shots of the Shatner, Nimoy, Kirk and Spock in some Nexus books in the backgrounds. Yeah. And it's funny because... If I had been working for the big companies, no doubt those would have been excised, just like the cigars and cigarettes were in my Captain America miniseries. Uh, just to finish on it, uh, are there? you mentioned Magnus. Are there any other sci-fi movies, films, books, TV, or other comics that have resonated with you? I don't know if this really corresponds to direct science fiction, but uh, there was something that took place in, uh, when I was a senior in high school, I think, maybe a junior. And again, to remind people, um, I lived in a very small town up in the UP, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, in a town called Escanaba, Michigan. And I, um, yeah, I was very socially active. And I remember an ad, I think it was a special showing of one of the Halloween movies from from the past. The name of the movie was Night of the Living Dead. And I looked at that and I thought, you know, Steve, you're already jaded as a senior in high school. Uh, I don't think anything could scare me anymore. And I feel kind of bad about that. Everyone loves to get scared. So I attended this movie and it was a packed house. And this movie comes on and it's in black and white. So I know it must be an old movie. And as this movie proceeded, 
to uh, click away on the projector, I found myself scared spitless. I mean, act absolutely horrified. So that the idea that I couldn't be scared anymore was quickly put to rest. Anyone who's seen Night of the Living Dead knows exactly what I'm talking about. So the joke was on me that night. You know, uh, because of rights issues with Night of the Living Dead, people have outright stolen that movie for decades. And one of the most interesting cases of this is, in fact, one of the co-writers of the movie decided he wanted to re-edit the film and film new material to add to it. So John Russo has a version of Night of the Living Dead, which, uh, I'm going to be blunt, is laughably terrible. It's, it's, it's kind of fascinating to see what he's added to this nearly perfect movie. But that's, I guess, what happens when you, uh, you have collaborators who disagree with some of the directions you take things. Well, I, I find what you just related to me fascinating in itself. So it's a very delicate thing as to whether things are going to be scary or laughably farcical. I remember seeing a new version of The Exorcist where they judiciously put back in a lot of stuff that they originally edited out in the in the release version the spider baby scene yeah um on its own i thought that was a scariest thing but when it was included in in the new version oh, how and how it could be how anyone could do something like that but um the editing process is is um is such a, a delicate very crucial art form to how a film comes across. I'll give you one example that really blows my mind, and it always has. The first Superman film. In the television release version, Superman has to go down to Luthor's lair. And in the television release version, he goes through all these trials that Luthor has set up as traps to prevent Superman from getting into his lair. There's this volcanic thing and this fire thing and a bunch of other things that Superman has to endure before he gets there. Version is so incredibly different. He literally goes from beat on the street, Superman, to blowing through the walls of Luthor's lair. Now, that is an example of, of editing in, in its effectiveness like nothing I've ever seen before. Yeah, there's there's about three or four hours of footage from the very first Richard Donner Superman movie, not even counting the material he shot for number two, that has been in various television versions and DVD releases over the years. So you can actually watch about ten different versions of Superman the movie. Yesterday, Michael, we talked about the possibility of ever getting my Nexus animated show on the airwaves at some point and what it would take to get it on the air. I'm extremely cognizant of the the power of editing and how it can work or kill a film. The version of Superman just going from the street and blasting through his door is, it, is to me, many, many times more effective. But it, um, when I was making films, I actually made, I was very obsessed along with painting and drawing back at technical college when I was like in my uh, early 20s. I was going to this technical school in Madison, Wisconsin. And I was obsessed with filmmaking and I took a filmmaking class and uh, the teacher called it. I remember he called the film that I made something called Final Refuge that I called it. And he didn't call it the best film ever made. He called it the most ambitious student film ever made, which I found interesting. 
that he would call it that. Because like uh, like people that know me would easily claim I'm an obsessive. And I think an obsessive is somebody who will go through hell and high water to get what he wants, regardless of the odds. That this happens to me, my personality type, don't give me more credit than I deserve. I just was kind of born that way. But I remember looking at the filmmaking magazines back when I was making my student film. And there was a quote that I never got. An editor's best friend is the cutting room floor. So that kind of goes back to the editing out all the stuff that bold, really brave editors do by chopping out stuff that doesn't belong in there. Here's another example, the Bruce Lee movie, Into the Dragon. After the initial scene where Bruce is fighting Samo, where he would talk to the head monk afterwards about his philosophy. Oh, sorry, Bruce, but in the movie version, that was not in there for a very good reason. It's completely deadens the film. So this is a case of get rid of your ego and do what the movie needs, not what your ego needs. Yeah, tone and pacing is something to get sacrificed when you jam a movie back with all of its deleted scenes sometimes. There, there's a few exceptions, though. There's some wonderful extended versions of movies that exist. Uh, the example I love to bring up the most is a movie from the year 2000 called Almost Famous. There's a 45-minute longer version of that movie that is a completely different film, all for the better because it enriches every character arc in the movie. Well, I'm not surprised, you know, Cameron Crowe seems to be a guy that, uh, with the exception of Vanilla Sky, which I didn't know what the hell was going on from start to finish, he's the kind of guy that you would assume would have a reason for everything, and perhaps the addition of things that were taken out by probably by the studio, probably had a reason to not only be in there, but it would actually add to the film. I think the greatest example of something that was taken out in the stupidest of ways, all-time stupidest of ways, was the second Alien film. When they took out the scene of Ripley was in a room and she was looking at a picture of her daughter, I believe. And by taking that that uh, less than five-minute scene out, you took away the whole theme that bonded the whole movie together. Now, what kind of an idiot, what kind of an idiot would sacrifice that short scene that reinforced the entire theme of the movie. You got to wonder about people like that. So when I do comic books, I don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. It's all up to my hopefully good judgment as to what stays in and what I'm very, very aware of boring people. That's one of the things that I always keep, always keep in the back of my mind and the forefront of my mind. Never bore a reader, ever. Well, there are also examples of people in comics doing special editions of their own books. It's the craziest thing. So, I, I mean, I may be wrong about this because it's been 20 years since I've thought about it, but I think Bob Fingerman redrew significant portions of some of his stories before re-releasing them as trades because his art style had evolved and he didn't want the old work out there. But it was a massive undertaking of redrawing for the same book. Well, that's interesting. Uh, you saw the retake on that, uh, Michael? I believe so. Yeah, what, what, what do you think about that book? Well, I, my original thought was that the first book looked great and that his new style was a lot more involved, which means it, it looked like his new style took a lot longer 
and the original had more flow to it. I'm sure he was happier with the results of his later work, but as a reader, I found the original work very charming. So it's strange to me to try to cover that up. I would imagine that I would agree with you 100%. People should not go messing with their old work. But it does happen all the time. I never knew that. I never, I never knew people would do that in comics. Well, I mean, you're probably aware of uh, George Lucas constantly tinkering with every film he's ever worked on. Yeah, I think we're all aware of that. <laughs> so some people, they're obsessed with uh, revisiting their own material and fixing it, but they often want to fix it from their current point of view, which might be very different than the person who originated a story. That's a really good point. I remember something that took place way back when, in the early 80s, when Nexus, Nexus had just come out, and I was in a, a convention back when they were fun. This was in, taking place in Chicago, and I, was, I walked up to the people that were doing the book that kind of hinted at the idea that people other than people living in New York or L.A. could actually produce comic books. And they were the people from that did the Justice Machine book. And uh, they were telling me how they wish they could have had more time and that a, that a better job of it. And consequently, in the years to follow, people would ask me, do you ever feel like you were embarrassed by your early work or would want to go back and revisit it and redraw some of the stuff? And my answer was always no. I did as good as I could at the time that I did it. I wasn't under the kind of pressure that I would say, I wish I had more time because I, I did have as much time as I needed for that stuff. And the effort was as sincere as I could get. So would I want to go back and change things smartly? The answer was always no. Well, I do have two more examples for you of uh, comics that people redid. And uh, this, this is interesting. So Paul Chadwick... After he had done Concrete, he took a break for a while and then came back and did New Concrete. But the first thing he published was a new version of his own origin story for the character, which I think originally was one issue, and he expanded to four or six for the retelling. And I had preferred the original. I don't want to knock Paul Chadwick. He's a brilliant writer. But I had wished that he had spent that six months just doing something new. No word about uh, Chadwick. All the guys, those were my, my peers back then. We were all part of the same generation, the same 80s time period that we all broke into the field kind of at once. So we knew each other very well, all of us did. Paul's a very clever guy. I always uh, liked engaging with him and his, and his wife, uh, Elizabeth. Yeah, Elizabeth. Yeah, that's, that's what it was. They were always together when I met them. They met young, they married young. And, of course, he was the basis for the character in the book, concrete book. People have mentioned to me over the years that, especially Alex Ross, he says, well, Saunders looking a lot, been looking a lot more like, like Janelle lately. Mm -hmm. uh, I personally don't see that. <laughs> but it's nice to get the reactions from uh, people outside of my own head. Well, it makes perfect sense that the people around you that you see every day, that elements of their face and facial structure will find its way into your drawings at some point. I, I, I'd like to know if that's true or not, based on other people's takes. But, you know, Alex is very firm on his opinion, so who knows? Uh, and I do have one last example of somebody redoing something, and it just occurred to me. You, in fact, did redo a piece when you guys 
essentially relaunched Nexus, you did redo the origin story as a long piece. Yeah, that you know, that's a really good thing to bring up with what we're talking about here. You know, I'll tell you what was going through my mind when we did that. We had done the origin. Me and Baron were fledgling everything. That was our initial effort with comic books from the start, the very beginning. And I told Baron, now that we're at Dark Horse, wouldn't it be nice and smart to launch the book with another retelling of the origin? And what was going through my mind that made the idea fun to do was I was thinking of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. How many times had they retold Captain America's origin? And every time they retold it, they added a little bit new to it. So that that excited me. I never thought of the fact that we we were going to fail or we were going to retell it in a in a bad way. To me, we were just adding a little more content to the history of the book. So I had a great time doing that. The only thing that was not good about the time I was redoing the Nexus, the origin at that time period was I had met Janelle, the girl I would spend my life with. And all I could do was think about her for the for an entire month. So the new origin retelling of Nexus was on hold for a month while I fixated on Janelle. Do you have any good convention stories, meaning crazy people, wonderful people, something that you've experienced that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 95% of everything that ever took place at a convention with me has been overwhelmingly positive. People that I seem to attract are exactly the kind of people I would hope to attract. I don't have aberrants. I don't have people that are that would be considered odd social people. These are people that are much like myself. They're sensitive people, and they're people that I think as Nexus readers they get the point of what the book is all about. Nexus is Nexus has many levels that people can read into when they experience the book. Yeah, I had a guy come up to me. This is one of these amazing moments that don't tend to be repeated a lot. Some guy came up to me after a panel. Some uh, some guy, maybe about 10 years younger than me, is his, um, had this extreme look on his face, almost a desperation, and he goes, Mr. Root, I, I want you to know, I, I don't want you to stop what you're doing. Maybe a lot of other people would have needed more explanations, but I knew exactly what he was talking about. So that was very, that was a profound moment for me. And uh, me being the kind of guy that I am, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not an average person in any way at all. I pick up on things. It's a really funny thing. Uh, when you're around a group of people, it's amazing how many people have no concept of other people's needs. I always had that kind of extra sense of perception that uh, odd people tend to have anyway, where you pick up on little cues from people that let you know that they're, I guess I would have to call them extraordinary in a sense. Ordinary people just go about their lives saying, nice day, isn't it? That kind of rule. I don't engage in things like that. I, I just find them a waste of time, and I find them to be very socially superfluous. So I don't tend to, I don't tend to do that with people. I tend to get more real pretty much from the very get-go when I meet them. And I don't know if they can sense that from me or, or not. I suspect they do. 
So when I meet people that also pick up those kind of social cues from me, that means I'm going to relate to them much more quickly and have a conversation that's much, much more meaningful. But I, it's hard to meet people like that. They're, they're, not, they're not the normal kind of people you meet in life. I do tend to meet a lot of people like the ones I'm talking about here, the ones that don't want to say, hey, how are you? They want to get into something deeper sometimes. And if they don't, if they're too shy to bring that up, I, I try to urge that out of them. Something else I learned later on that I'm, I was kind of ashamed of this. I thought it took so long for me to learn this. I was overseas. Me and Janelle were invited to a show in Italy. And this would have been in the uh, early 90s. And uh, it's really different over there. You go to a comic shop. It was a huge freaking comic shop. And they had news reporters there to cover the event. And tons of people standing outside. I felt bad for them. It's like, geez, you're standing there in the cold just for me. I went out to dinner with uh, some of the other fans that were there. Two in particular, we went out to dinner with. And these two fans that were there with me and Janelle, they so wanted to talk to me. But they were shy. And I was too dumb to make the first overtures to start talking with them. Them being kind of tongue-tied and in, in not knowing how to start a conversation with but i realized again because this was such a social blunder in my part and i felt so bad about it thinking back i said to myself don't ever do that again to somebody so not being one to want to repeat mistakes and feel that embarrassment all over again i, I started to very quickly learn that whenever i'm at a show and someone may be hovering around my table that's not talking don't wait they're out there for a reason so do something about it go up and start talking to them about what they want to talk to you about but don't wait All right. Um, so you told me earlier you have some movies and things you wanted to talk about. We we talked a little bit earlier about uh, the Superman movie, Night of the Living Dead. What other films were in your mind to discuss? There was a movie that um, changed everything about how I thought about, well, pretty much everything. That was the first Bruce Lee movie. Before the first Bruce Lee movie came out that we all do in America is Fist of Fury there was a Kung Fu show. And I was obsessed with that too. It was an incredibly good show. That was a, a trendsetter in every way. And I still love that show to this day. It was profound in many ways. The, the techniques and the, and the way the show was produced was amazing. So those are the things that made up the great parts of what I've learned from in my life. And because they're I consider them to be that profound. They seep into every pore that I have that goes into my work as an artist and, and now as a writer. But when um, the Bruce Lee movies came along, it kind of shattered what the Kung Fu show had been doing, which is showing all the fights in slow motion. And then along comes this these foreign films starring this guy, this really handsome Chinese guy with this incredible physique named Bruce Lee. And none of us knew who, who the hell this guy was. I didn't find out till he died that he was Cato in the Green Hornet. That blew my mind. Because when you're young, the time span between like eight years is like forever. Not like now, 
where you can uh, go out for a coffee and it feels like, you know, uh, a year has gone by or whatever. But yeah, the, the movie came out and I sat in that theater and uh, I talked about how my jaw had, had dropped when I saw certain things in my life. Well, this was a double a double doing of uh, jaw dropping. I I couldn't believe what I was looking at. In my mind, in my opinion, The Fist of Fury with Bruce Lee, the first movie released in America from Hong Kong, is a perfect movie. Now, had I seen his other movies, The Chinese Connection and Return of the Dragon first, I'm certain it wouldn't have had the same effect on me. I didn't like either of those movies. When Enter came out, which was, um, ironically, it came out, Chinese Connection came out in the early part of 73. And Enter came out a couple of months after that. Now, that's a very weird thing for movies to do. You never expect a movie to come out a couple of months after the last movie starring the same guy came out. It was a very unconventional way of experiencing things, but that's the way it was going to work out. Raymond Chow, the producer of these movies, was a very greedy guy, and he wanted to get those movies out and collect his fees. Enter was Bruce's first film. Finally got his goal that he was looking for for his entire life. Now, with some irony, you know, there's that Chinese line that uh, is very hard to dispute. Be careful what you wish for. And that's exactly what was going on in the life of Bruce Lee. The more he got what he, he claimed he wanted, the more miserable he became. I looked at Bruce Lee's life in the last several months. He ordered a, a Rolls Royce. I think it was niche, but I think that was the model of what he ordered. I looked at his life as having ordered that, that Rolls Royce and looking for a brick wall to crash that into. Because his life, had he lived... Was this going to get worse and worse? You know, he was, uh, he had his mistresses that he, he thought he could get away with. He wasn't going to last long with those secrets in his life. He was taking drugs to calm himself down. He was doing everything that if you had told a, um, a mid-20s Bruce Lee of what he was doing, once he achieved his goals, he would be aghast at what he was doing this is a funny thing i think about sometimes if the younger version of yourself were to know the the things you were doing to your body and your mind later on to compensate for things the pressures of life having finally gotten what you claimed you wanted in life how what would you think of what you're doing at that point well bruce lee was not doing and all of us were completely shocked when we heard about the so-called drug letters. For what it's worth, I have never had a a single drug other than things like aspirin enter my, my body. Whatever the crowd did, I did the exact opposite. That's part of my personality. If people drank, I never drank. If people took drugs, I would never have any part of it. Not really sure why. I just hated the status quo. I couldn't stand being like that. It's part of my my personality to this day i've never had a smoke of anything or an ingestion of anything in my lifetime i hated those kind of things i can't stand beer what i like and i, I kind of make a joke out of this because i remember this when i was a kid give me kool-aid and cookies and i'm fine my beer of choice has always been root beer 
and that's what I drink nowadays if I want to have a sugar high. I try to limit it to two <laughs> when I'm driving. <laughs> that's what I like. That's just me. Well, I got to say, it's a pretty, uh, pretty fresh take on uh, Enter the Dragon or Fist of Fury to get all the way to my preferences, Kool-Aid and cookies. Yeah, well, that's me, Michael. Never expect the usual things to come out of this head or this mouth. Uh, do you have any other films you'd like to lay on us that will similarly send you down such an interesting path? Yeah, I do. Um, I'll preface this, Michael, by saying one of my, again, one of my most typically bizarre things that no one else would, would say. I was talking to the, the head of Netflix, the adult animation department. His name is Mike Moon. Mike Moon, instead of being a typical executive type, is a wonderful person. I just love this guy. I got to know him on behalf of uh, the people at Dark Horse who were trying to sell the animated Nexus to Netflix. And uh, Mike Richardson, the head of Dark Horse, happened to know this, the guy that uh, ran the animation department. Now, ultimately, we were unsuccessful in, in selling Nexus to them, but I got to know this guy who was as unsuit-like as you can get. His name is Mike Moon. He made a comment one time that really showed he was on the same bizarre level of thinking that I was. He goes, I, uh, he goes, I love it when people say things that aren't in tune with what everyone else says. You know, that's the kind of weird thing that I would say. But it came out of his mouth, so I knew right away that we identified with each other in a kind of an off, off, off weird, bizarre kind of a way. But, uh, yeah, there is another thing as far as movies go that uh, I wonder if anyone has ever bothered to mention. And that is, there's two movies that everyone always talks about. One is Citizen Kane. And the one that I like to bring up is Ben-Hur. And I've had kind of had this line in my head for a while now. So these are supposed to be the greatest movies ever made, too. Especially Citizen Kane is always brought up by these snobs, right? And Ben-Hur is a movie that I can watch. Citizen Kane is pretty dry. Citizen Kane is about the disintegration of the human spirit. And Ben-Hur is about the ascension of the human spirit. They're opposites as far as the message of the story that is presented in, in these movies here. Now, I don't know if that's a weird take that you've never heard from anyone else, but I suspect it is. Well, I've never heard anybody compare them before, that's for sure. These are comparisons that anyone could make. But you can go through your whole lifetime and never hear anyone bring up something like this. Something that's so obvious to me. Uh, in the last 10 years or so, the debate seems to be, and this is not my debate, but one I've read many times, what is the best movie of all time? Is it Citizen Kane or is it Vertigo, the Alfred Hitchcock movie? And that has somehow become more of a front runner for greatest film ever made. And I'm not even a fan of Vertigo, so I find it very interesting that that has taken the critical world by storm in the last 10 or 20 years. Well, this is a great place to launch into something else that I, I find humorously and impossibly stupid with people in their, in their critical assessments of things. 
Now, I have I have a really good friend of mine like that I happen to like. His name is Gary Lockwood. He's the actor that was in 2001 Space Odyssey. And he means a lot to me because he was in the second Star Trek pilot. He's a fantastic actor. He's had no official training as an actor. He's a natural. I would rate him 1 through 10 to be a 10. That's how good he is as an actor. He's so underplayed. He's, he's so much a natural that I cannot rate him any higher as a guy in his profession that could get any better than you. Much like Shatner. Shatner never took acting lessons. So it just goes to show that it doesn't matter what what is behind the person who is on screen, whether they had 20 years of acting experience or, or zero. What you're seeing is what you're getting. And if you rate him based on just what you're looking at is very high, then that's that's the truth that you observe it as. Now, um, I use the example of 2001 because it's it's a running joke to me. When the first movie came out, nobody got it. Ten years from, from that point, everyone claimed to get it. I hate that fact that people, I, I still say they're lying, and they when they say they get it, they really don't. But they want to sound smarter. If they do, it's it's a very personal, idiosyncratic take on what they believe the movie to be about. But nobody actually gets it. They're just reading into it to sound smart. Smarter than they really are. And I hate that kind of uh, thinking and posturing. It's nonsense to me. Well, that's a hot take from Steve Rude on 2001. Yeah. I don't tell Gary this because he'd be offended. <laughs> You have uh, quite a connection to a few famous people. So you have hung out with, and know quite well, Gary Lockwood. You've got a connection to Shatner. Anybody else in the Star Trek industry or anyone outside of it who qualifies in the same celebrity category? Yeah, well, I got to, I got to know Bruce Lee's daughter, Shannon, pretty well. Uh, Shannon is kind of uh, close to the best. And I, I wish I got to know her a little better. Those kind of people and I don't tend to get very close. I like people that are very open and undisguised and um, very open about life and, and not, not afraid of anything, really. They're not afraid to be what they are. Just say it as as they wish to say it very openly. And I think the women tend to be a little more guarded. You know, I knew Cynthia Rothrock. I didn't know anything about her for the longest time. I'd never seen her movies, but I had heard that she's a pretty famous uh, B-movie martial arts star. So I, I got to know her. I think she's in the, the Rude Dude documentary. I got to know Gary Owens, the voice of Space Ghost, very well. He was a total gentleman. I can't talk enough about him as being a wonderful man. I mean, when you're able to say something like what I just said about Gary as being this wonderful human being, how much better can you, can you say about somebody than what I just uh, related to you? To call somebody a wonderful human being. Not everyone that walks the sidewalk is a wonderful human being, but these particular guys are. And who else can I can I mention that I have been lucky enough to be friend over the years? Um, I got to know Stan Lee a couple times. He was a wonderful guy. Meeting Jack Kirby was, I mean, meeting Jack Kirby. You know, imagine this is a very bizarre thing that a lot of people can relate to, and, and but most people can't. 
And that is going from being a, an eight-year-old, walking into a stop and go and looking through the spinner racks and immediately being bludgeoned by this incredibly strong, forceful art that went beyond just normal anything that another artist might interpret. This was a form of dynamicism that I'd never seen before and I'd never seen since. As, as the years and finally the decades would go by, and that was the art of this guy, thanks to the credits that Stan would insert in all the Marvel books by the name of Jack Kirby. And I was I was in the moment I saw this particular cover of an issue of Tales of Suspense with Captain America on the cover. That's where it started. And it never stopped. And then they go from there to being utterly determined to wanting to become an artist and work for Marvel Comics someday. So you were actually in the field and then doing work good enough so that I got noticed. And eventually from there, getting to know the founding fathers of our, our industry, because they were all still alive. Now, the guys that come into the field today will never have that privilege. So they've got to rely on guys like me to recite the moments of having met these people, which I'm fine with. I love telling these kind of stories. I love being the kind of guy they have to walk up to and say, what was it like to meet Jack Kirby, Stan, people like that? I'm happy to tell them because 99% of everything is a, is a positive thing when I, I've met these people, everything, great people. So imagine going through that cycle where you're actually invited over to Jack Kirby's home. It's surreal, and at the same time, it's, it's, it's not. It's a very normal human experience as you would visit anyone in their home. Roz was always there, and she was always the kind of person that everyone described her as. Jack Kirby's better half. She allowed all these things to happen in Jack's life without a lot of drama. That's very much the role that Janelle fills in my life. You know, she's the business manager of, of Rudeau. She does all the, she's got an entire garage full of all the business doings and the mailing of, of all this stuff and the sale of posters and the, the sketchbooks that we sell every year and the commissions that come in. She's in charge of all that stuff. I just have the luxury, thank God, because she takes care of all the business parts that I would obviously never want to do. Most artists do not relish being businessmen. I just sit here and focus on what I like, which is drawing. Greg Hildebrand has the same thing going on with his agent. She's a wonderful lady that just protects him so that he can, you know, now that he's in his 70s, he can just do what he wants for the rest of his life without hindrance. All right. Uh, I don't want to take up too, too much more of your time, but uh, if you have any other films that you wanted to wax poetic about, yeah, um, uh, Wizard of Oz, I consider one of the great films of all time. And the reason I consider it great is because, like all great films or great anything, it has many layers of things that echo back to the big picture of, of existence. And if you look closely at the elements that make up the story, you'll be able to perceive things like, I think one of the strongest ones is, is the man behind the curtain. Uh, the blowhards that exist in our, in our lives. And this goes back to something I was talking about earlier, to no surprise. People that pretend to be what they aren't. 
out of insecurity. There's so many people, and surprisingly enough, in some of the highest positions in government that pretend there's something that they're really not. And I find that not, not a good thing. Despicable. Don't fake what you are. If you learn to become what you should be through trial and error and a true route of getting real information and real knowledge and something that can't be faked, then you're going to become the person that you should be. Someone that doesn't have to fake anything. You grow into the person that you should be through trying hard and learning things through the effort of trying. That's what makes up a good life and a good person. Any other films you want to bring up? Sound of Music is another one. That's another one that I think is uh, is astonishingly profound in its message, especially since they use it to relate to an incident in history that is that most people can never understand. Well, it's impossible to understand for people that weren't there, especially the people that uh, were there in Normandy Beach and all these kind of things. I'm always reading about World War II. My dad was somebody that was always reading about World War II. All those people of that generation, because they were there to experience it firsthand, they were always fascinated by the wars. Now, people like me, I never fought in any war. I was too young to ever be in Vietnam. That was like for people that were 10 years older than I was. But just to be an informed person is what life, to me, should be about. And... I believe that learning new things, preferably every day, if possible, is the way life should be lived. Because every time you find something new, you, you become more enlightened as to something that you knew nothing about before the time that you, you ended up reading it. And by reading it, you become smarter and more informed about reality. And you don't, going back to faking things, you don't have to fake anything because you have a better take in something having read it than you ever would not having read it. Yeah, there's actually one more important thing. Now that I've become someone who has to write his own stories, I'm extremely aware of the faults and the people that pull off good or bad movies. The, the faults tend to, tend to be, especially in TV shows, the faults tend to be moments of talking too much. It's very hard to keep an extended talking scene interesting. That should be the downfall of anyone. Why they don't see this is preposterously dumb of them. They should all know better. And they should know they're deliberately padding the scene that if they were just a little smarter as writers, they should eagerly find ways to fill that up with something more than just a bunch of stupid talk scenes that become boring very quickly. Unless you're a really good writer and can keep people on the edge of their seats through just two people talking with dialogue, uh, truncate it, cut it in half or even more, and get on with another scene that keeps things moving. So I'm always in tune to the good and bad of how people produce things. And when I see something that is well done, I'm overjoyed to see it because you learn as much from that as you do the bad stuff. I couldn't agree more. You mentioned before that you're teaching yourself to write. Didn't you have at least a little bit of influence on the story of the moth? Yeah, I had a lot to do with the moth. Um, Gary Martin and I kind of 
co-produced the direction of the book. As I recall, I had the entire foundation mapped out, this whole circus thing. And I haven't visited in a while, but I, I'm going to have to very soon because people want the moth to come back. So, um, oh, look at the flow heart here. My, my beagle is coming in with a football that squeaks in the middle. <laughs> oh, my God. She's turning into a puppy. She's 11 years old and she's turning into a puppy. Now, that's a funny thing. Everyone's got the youthful plaything in them their entire lives. That's another thing worth mentioning. No one ever outgrows their little, their little self. That's always there. And people that try to pretend they don't have that, they're, they're really letting, they're not doing a favor to themselves by trying to hide that. It's nonsense. Yeah, the moth. The moth has got literally as many stories as Nexus has. And Nexus has, has been going for a long time. And Nexus, to go, to go back to Nexus and the storylines, these people that bring up the fact that, well, I've run out of story ideas for these characters. I don't know what the hell they're talking about. To mention that they're running out of stories ideas is to say that in comparison, their own lives have run out of story ideas or things that are going to happen to them. Well, that's not even possible. There's always something going on and life is always moving forward with things that they never could have anticipated around the next corner. Well, it's the same thing with writing uh, characters that have been around for 40 some years. You know, you could never run out of things for them to do because you're still alive. You're still thinking. You're still going through processes in life. So why wouldn't your characters do that? So I consider that the ultimate cop-out when people say, I don't know what, what we're to write about them. I've used up all my ideas. I say nonsense. Same with the moth. The moth had a very short shelf life. And because I own the moth, I don't have to wait for some stupid publisher to give me the green light on that. So I encourage everyone to look twice at the idea that think of your own characters and self-publish. Publish your books and be free from the demands of the normally very idiotic and politically correct demands of, of the current publishers out there. Do your own thing, hopefully in a responsible manner. Not everyone does that. And tell if you have a story to tell that you believe is very powerful and profound, what's stopping you? Nothing. In this day and age, you can do anything you want. It was never possible or far more difficult back in previous uh, decades. That's no longer true. So you can't use that as an excuse. If you've got a property that you want to speak your mind through, then do it. I don't like anything that's animated nowadays. And that's why... I have to be in charge of every single inch and aspect of my cartoon show. Otherwise, I have no reason to make it. If somebody else is going to take over and call the shots, there's I'm going to fail in every way because I consented to that. Therefore, I'm never going to consent to that. So that's why the odds of finding a person that lets me do exactly what I know I need to do, because believe me, I know what I need to do. If you've seen the pilot, the three minutes of pilot on YouTube, that's the show, but hopefully a lot better because we'll have a full story to tell and there'll be voices and all that. But essentially, that's what it's going to look like. So, yeah, the technology is what it is, but you're responsible for picking whatever era of technology that you want to be in the work that you produce. Mine is 1960s and 70s. I came in in the 80s 
And so I was bringing the 60s and 70s sensibilities to my work. That's never going to change. If anything, rather than looking at what people are currently doing, I go backwards even farther. And my current backwards going farther is Prince Valiant because I'm, I happen to be doing a comic strip and why wouldn't I want to look at the best of the best in the same format that I'm trying to do now to up my game with? I rewatched uh, the short Nexus trailer this morning, actually, the one that's about 30 seconds, 40 seconds long. And I was, I'd seen it before, I was struck by the old school, but with a slight modern twist, Hanna-Barbera-ness of it. Yeah, what you're looking at was the, uh, was the original film that we produced when we didn't know what we were doing. That was the version we did when uh, we had a bunch of guys in my living room that had no idea what we were doing. We, we worked on cell rather than the later version, which was done in, in computer. It was all hand-drawn in paper, mm -hmm. but it was imported into the computer to computer color. That was the original version on cell that uh, we made all, all our mistakes on so we could do a better job on the final. Steve, uh, you have been very generous with your time in a way that stopping by a convention booth and saying hi to you just wouldn't have been possible. So this has been a real treat for me. Well, good. I'm especially glad I had a chance to talk about the Nexus show. Because every time I bring it up, there's the very small chance somebody out there may hear this by accident and do something about it. So that was important to me. I'm so glad you brought that up.